Well, good morning. Glad you all are here. Hey, why don't you grab your Bibles? If you uh, have your own Bible, grab it at this point in time. If you don't, there should be plenty of Bibles uh, just like this one scattered in the pew backs in front of you. And would you turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. If you're not familiar with the Bible, it's towards the end of your Bible, uh, into the New Testament, the first book in your New Testament, uh, Gospel of Matthew. And we are in chapter 12, chapter 12 of Matthew's Gospel, as we pick up once again in our ongoing sermon series, The King and His Kingdom, uh, taking a look at the life and ministry of Jesus on our behalf in Matthew's gospel. We will be starting in verse 15, Matthew chapter 12, verse 15. I trust that you're there close to it. Let's pray and we're going to dive right in. Father, we're so grateful to be here. It is a joy and a privilege for us to sing songs of worship and praise to you for all that you have done, uh, the least of which certainly is not what your son has done for us. He has given everything. He has humbled himself, uh, becoming human. He has entered into this world as, a, as an infant. He has lived a, a perfect life of obedience uh, in place of our life of disobedience. He, he, he died a gruesome substitutionary death on the cross, paying the penalty for my sins and for all the sins of everyone in this world. And he rose again. And he's gone forth to heaven and has offered a place in heaven and eternal life, forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with the Father, and the opportunity to be made a new creature through faith in him. We have much to be grateful for and much to praise you for, our Father. Lord, we're grateful for the spirit that you have given us who believe and that you have allowed him to inspire this Bible that we have sitting on our laps. And we are grateful that it is your word to us and that you have preserved the the life of your son for us. And so now, Jesus, I pray as we turn to look at your life, help us to see the truth uh, about him and about us that you want. And may we leave uh, this room changed because of it, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. So I want to begin this morning uh, with, uh, in a way that I'm sure will thrill and excite everyone, and that is with a little math. Okay, you ready? A little math? Just stay with me, okay? Biblical scholars generally agree that there are roughly 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled in his life. So just ponder that for a moment. 300 or so prophecies in the Old Testament that Jesus in his life fulfilled. That's spectacular in and of itself, but it it gets better. I want us to think about probabilities. Okay, probabilities, just for a moment. If you're a math whiz, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think most of us know how they work, right? So let's begin with the simple probability. The odds of you or I being struck by lightning. You want to guess? The odds of being struck by lightning is as ten, 7 times 10 to the 5th, or in other words, uh, 700,000. The odds of you or I becoming president is 1 time, times 10 to the 7th, or essentially 10 million. So, what are the odds? What are the odds that Jesus in his solitary and single life would fulfill all 300 messianic prophecies about his life? Well, the answer uh, is, is very, very slim. I, I want to simplify this. What are the odds that he would fulfill just eight? Just eight of those prophecies. Well, if you'll see on the screen behind me, uh, there is a picture of a, of a man in a book that he wrote, uh, Dr. Peter, Peter Stoner. He, he, he's written a little book called Science Speaks, and he did the math of the probability that Jesus would fulfill just eight of these prophecies. Now, you can see on the chart behind me, these are the eight prophecies in the Old Testament that he chose, along with the probability of each. Now, before your head just goes boom and explodes, right? Because we're, we're 
we're talking about math, let me just, just sort of summarize this for you. Dr. Stoner concluded that the, the probability that Jesus would fulfill just eight of these prophecies is one times ten to the twenty. Seventh. One times ten till the twenty-seventh. Or, if you want to take a look at that, what it looks like, boom, that. One in that many. So, that many is hard for us to wrap our brains around, right? So, let me just maybe make it a little simpler. Uh, someone has said, although I haven't personally verified this, that if you take that many silver dollars... Okay, you with me? That number of silver, silver dollars, and you, and you cover the entire state of Texas with them. Now, I should know, Texas is a big state, right? If you cover the state of Texas with them, that you would have silver dollars piled two feet high throughout the entire state of Texas. Okay, you got that in your mind? Now, the probability that Jesus will fulfill just Eight of these Old Testament prophecies would be like marking just one silver dollar with a red X, throwing it in the state of Texas out of an airplane, and saying, Stand, boys, you can find that one piece, okay? Can you do it? It's a challenge. It'd be a challenge, right? That is the probability that Jesus will fulfill just eight of these prophecies. And friends, how many did he fulfill? All 300, right? This is staggering. So, why did we begin with math? Well, it begins, we begin with math because I want us to see that the life of Jesus reaffirms the scriptures. The life of Jesus makes more sure, more certain our trust in the scriptures. Because as we continue in Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 through 21, Matthew is going to point out just one, just one of these Old Testament prophecies that Jesus in his life, in chapter 12, Fulfilled. Now, if you were with us a few weeks ago, you recall that at the beginning of chapter 12, uh, Jesus restored the Sabbath day. He, he fed his men who were hungry. He healed a lame man on the Sabbath, and by doing so, he uh, restored the Sabbath to its original place in its intended meaning. Well, today, in chapter 12, and starting in verse 15, we're going to see Jesus reaffirm the Scriptures. As Matthew is going to say, what Jesus just did... He had a, a controversy with the Pharisees. He withdrew from the Pharisees. He ministered to those who are in need. Matthew is going to say, Jesus fulfilled Scripture by doing just that. So we're going to begin in verses uh, 15 and 16 with the path that the Lord followed. The path that the Lord followed, starting in verse 15 with His choice. His choice. Notice verse 15. Aware of this, that is, aware that the Pharisees intended, plotted to murder him. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. Friends, lest we think that the Pharisees' conspiracy to kill Jesus was unbeknownst to him, or somehow that this was outside of Jesus' sovereign control, or his Father's sovereign plan. Matthew tells us that Jesus knew what they were doing. He was aware of their plans. He knew that this was all a part of his Father's design, all a part of his Father's plan, and that the cross would ultimately be the culmination of their conspiracy. So the question is this, how would Jesus respond? This is the first major public confrontation that Jesus had with the religious leaders. How would he respond? Well, Matthew tells us very plainly, he says that he withdrew. 
He withdrew from that place. He left the conflict. This is the first time that Jesus makes the intentional choice in Matthew's gospel to avoid further conflict. But friends, we're going to see it as we continue our way in Matthew's gospel. It will become his standard practice between now and the cross. And so while the murderous Pharisees went out to plot his murder, Matthew tells us that the masses of people went after him to procure his mercy. A large crowd followed him. And what did he do? He was compassionate. He was merciful. He loved his sheep. He healed all who were ill. Though the leaders rejected him, he did not reject his messianic ministry to the people. He continued to serve And so we see his choice in verse 15, but his choice to withdraw came with a charge to the people. In verse 16, notice, he warned them. He warned them not to tell others about him. Friends, we see uh, statements like this throughout the Gospels. And oftentimes it causes us to wonder, didn't Jesus want people to know that he was the Messiah? So why is he telling this crowd whom is receiving ministry from him, not to tell other people about him. Well, I think the reason lies in his understanding of his father's timetable for his life. See, his time to die and his method of death had not yet come. Sure enough, he would die at the hands of the religious leaders, but not then, not yet. His death was to be at a certain time at a certain place, in a certain way. And had the people that he ministered to told others about his messiahship, it could have invited more opposition. And humanly speaking, it could have accelerated that timetable. See, Jesus knew his father's plan, and so he warned them not to tell others about him. We see Jesus' control and his, uh, his plan for his life other places. So, for instance, in John chapter eight, uh, chapter seven, verse eight, Jesus says to his brothers, "You go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come." See, Jesus knew that there would be a time in his life where he would die for the sins of the world, but that time had not yet come. He says, "I'm, I'm not going to go. It's not time yet." But when the time did come. For instance, in Matthew 26, verse 45, Jesus could say this, Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. And so he made the choice to withdraw from the conflict. And he gave the crowds a charge not to tell others about him, because his time, the time, had not yet come. Friends, that leads us to a bit of a break as we consider some truths for us today from this passage. I see uh, one in these opening verses, and it is this. Jesus is in complete control. Jesus is in complete control. Friends, don't ever be fooled into thinking that Jesus was a victim. Don't ever be fooled into thinking that he was some victim. His life was purposeful. His every move was intentional, as was his death. And we can have confidence in who Jesus is and what he did because of that. I don't know if you ever take the time to watch some of the documentaries about the life of Christ. They tend to come on around, oh, Christmas time, of course, holiday time, and sometimes they'll come on around Easter time, channels like the Discovery Channel, the History Channel, right? Uh, I don't go out of my way to watch these, but if I'm flipping on TV 
during that season, and I happened to see the so-called experts, and I use that loosely, uh, speak about the life of Christ on these TV shows. I, I always pay attention a little bit because I'm interested to see what they think about Jesus. I'm interested to see how they portray Him. And in, inevitably, when these so-called scholars are asked the question, why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus die? They say things like, well, He was a religious radical and He, he was a victim of the Jewish religious leaders of His day. Or they may say something like, well, he was a political revolutionary and he incited the wrath of Rome. In other words, they say it just happened to him, right? It just happened to him and he ended up on the cross. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you, is that how the Bible presents it? No. The Bible does not present it that way at all. For instance, uh, Jesus in John chapter 10 verse 1 makes this bold claim. Friends, pause and ponder this. Jesus speaks about his own death this way. No one takes it from me. That is his life. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. He says, I have authority to lay it down and to take it up again. This command I have received from my Father. That is spectacular. Jesus says, when I die... I'm laying down my life. Nobody's taking it from me. Not the Pharisees, not the Romans, not the Jews. In fact, when he was before Pilate on trial in John chapter 19, verse 11, he, te- he, he says these audacious words to Pilate. He says, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above, right? Pilate says, don't you know who I am? Don't you know that I have the authority to take your life or to give it back to you? And what does Jesus say? No, you don't. No, you don't. I'm in control. I have the authority. And so, friends, Jesus was in complete control over the events of his life, including his death, including his uh, being betrayed. So, friends, if that's true with Jesus and the events of his life... How much more true is it for the events in my life and the events in your life? Jesus was and is in complete control. I don't know what painful situations you're going through. I don't know what sort of rejection or hostility that you're facing like Jesus was. Maybe someone has set their sights to ruin you at work or at school. But regardless, Jesus is in absolute control over his life and over your life. There are no accidents When it comes to our life, there's no chance events. There's no such thing as luck, if you will. Stories told of an old-fashioned cowboy who was applying for health insurance. And the agent asked him, of course, this routine question. Well, sir, have you had any accidents? To which he replied, well, no, not really. Once, well, there was that time that I was bitten by a rattlesnake. And there was that other time that the horse, it it kicked me in the ribs, and that laid me up for a while, but I really haven't had any accidents. Of course, the agent said, wait a minute, wait a minute. A snake bit you, and a horse kicked you. Those weren't accidents? To which he replied, no, they did those to me on purpose, right? Of course they did. You know, the cowboy's right, right? Things just don't happen. Everything is under the sovereign control of our great God and Savior. And it changes our perspective. We can have strength in times of trouble, comfort even in the worst of circumstances, confidence that God is working out His will and His plan for His glory and for our good. And we see it in the life of Christ. And we see it in our lives as well if we have eyes to see 
and ears to hear. Well, we've seen in verses 15 and 16 the path that the Lord followed. Next, starting in verse 17, we see the prophecy that the Lord fulfilled. Starting in verse 15, Matthew is going to cite an Old Testament passage. Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. And Matthew is going to say that when Jesus withdrew from the conflict, and when he ministered to the hurting crowds, that he was actually fulfilling prophecy about how the Messiah would act. Now, the Jews of the day probably wouldn't look at this text and anticipate that that's how the Messiah would act. But Matthew says that's exactly the case. He's humble. He's gentle. And he fulfills Isaiah chapter 42, the prophecy of the suffering servant. Friends, it's amazing to me that Isaiah penned this prophecy and many others, but Isaiah penned this prophecy that Matthew cites some 600 years before Jesus was born. Just ponder that for a moment. 600 years before Jesus came onto the scene, lived his life, and fulfilled this prophecy, God, through the prophet Isaiah, predicted that this is how Messiah would act. Friends, let me ask you a question. Can God write tomorrow's headlines yesterday? Ponder that. Can God write tomorrow's headlines yesterday? Yes, he can. And he did here in Matthew chapter 12. So let's begin as Matthew portrays Jesus in verse 17 as the chosen one. He's the one that the Father has chosen. He is the Messiah. Verse 17, Matthew writes, This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. And then he cites it. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations, in Greek, to the ethnos, which is where we get our word, what? Ethnicity, right? He will proclaim justice, justice to, the, to the nations, to the, the different ethnicities of this world. In these verses, Jesus is likened to the suffering servant that Isaiah, in chapter 42, portrays. He, he literally is the Messiah, uh, he's the one whom I have chosen. It's the verb form for the noun Messiah, chosen one. So literally, Matthew says, no, the, the Pharisees reject him as king. The Jews will ultimately reject him as king. But, but does God reject him as king? No. God receives him as king. He says he is God, the Father's Messiah. He said he's the one that God loves. God delights in his son. And he has given him his Holy Spirit. We saw the Spirit descend upon Jesus at his baptism, for instance. And he is the one, ultimately, who will even call the Gentiles into account. Now let me just pause here and say this is significant. We see the the mention of Jesus' ministry not just to the Jewish people, but to all people mentioned first here in chapter 12, verse 17. And it's worth noting also that we have a reference to the Trinity, do we not? Did did you see it there? Here is my servant whom I, God the Father, have, have chosen. My servant being Jesus, the one I love, I delight in him. I will put my spirit upon him. And so we have three in one. The Trinity referenced 
in this Bible. So Jesus is the one that is chosen of God. Despite the rejection that he has experienced and he will continue to experience, God affirms him. He is indeed the Messiah. But not only is he the chosen one, but if you look at verse 19 and 20, he is the calm one. He is the calm one. Because Isaiah continues to predict in verse 19, he will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smothering wick he will not snuff out, till, until he has brought justice through to victory. Matthew is saying here that Jesus, in his withdrawal from the conflict with the Pharisees, that he dealt gently with his enemies, that he was humble with his enemies. Did you see that? He won't quarrel. The Messiah is not going to be quarrelsome, right? He's not going to go picking fights with the religious leaders. He's not going to cry out. No one will hear him screaming in the streets. He's gentle. Notice the imagery, a bruised reed, right? It's the picture of a, of, of a reed that's just hanging and it's about to break. And he says, Jesus is so gentle, even to his enemies, that he's not going to break it off. A a smoldering wick, right? A a, a fire, a light. It's about to be snuffed out. But even the faintest breath from Jesus, he's not going to snuff it out. It's pictures of Jesus' gentleness because he withdrew from conflict rather than seeking after conflict. And so he's the chosen one and he's the calm one. He's the gentle one. He fulfills prophecy even by withdrawing from his enemies. The other day, I was uh, swinging Dever on the swing, and uh, I was just swinging him like I normally do, and you know, swinging him, pushing him, pushing him, pushing him like this. And for whatever reason, I, I, I instead of sort of pushing his back like this, I, I, I thought I'd give his back a little pat, right? You know, kind of get it. I got him going. You know, he's going higher, and I just kind of pat a little bit, and he goes up, and he. A little pat, you know, I'm not hitting, just a little, little pat, you know, just a way to kind of get him a little higher. And, and, and he says, stop it. And I said, stop what? Stop pushing you? No, no, you're, you're, you're being mean to me. I said, I'm just, just, just gently. He says, you're not being gentle. I said, oh, am I not? And then this is a phrase he's just picked up. He says, you're not doing a good job. It's like, okay, back to doing it the other way, right? Friends, that was the, the charge against me. I wasn't being gentle enough. But, but Matthew says that even Jesus' enemies couldn't make that charge, right? They couldn't say, you're not being gentle with us. However, and this is key, just because Jesus is humble and gentle with those who are plotting his murder, it doesn't mean that someday he will not exercise judgment upon them. It does not mean that someday he will not execute judgment upon those who refuse to bow the knee, who refuse him as Messiah and Savior and King. Because the end of Isaiah in verse 20, until he's humble, until he has brought justice through to victory. In other words, in his first coming, he's a a humble and gentle Savior, a sinless and silent sacrificial lamb. But friends, one day... The Bible says he's coming back. One day, the Bible says, upon his return to this earth, the tone will be very different. He will no longer be the lamb to his enemies, but he will be the lion of the tribe of Judah. He will judge those who reject him 
in his offer of salvation and forgiveness of sins. Well, Matthew portrays Jesus as the chosen one. He portrays Jesus as the calm one. And in verse 21, he portrays Jesus as the comprehensive one. Notice what Isaiah adds in verse 21. In his name, the nations... Have we heard that before? Has that come up in this verse before? The nations, the ethnos. In his name, the nations will put their hope. Friends, what is Matthew doing here? Uh, Matthew is giving us a bit of a sneak peek. Matthew is, getting, is giving us a bit of a, a preview, a teaser, if you will, as to how the gospel story is going to end. Let me ask you this. What will happen if the Jews continue on their current trajectory of rejecting Jesus as their Messiah? What's going to happen? Here, Matthew is looking forward and anticipating the cross and the resurrection of Jesus and the giving of the Great Commission. You might be familiar with that in Matthew chapter 28 starting in verse 18, where Jesus tells his disciples to go and make disciples of all the what? I didn't hear you. All the what? Yeah, all the nations. Now that's interesting, right? Because Isaiah predicted that in Jesus' name, the nations would put their hope, right? And so Matthew is pointing us forward, saying the Jews will reject him. And he will turn to the Gentiles. He will turn to the nations. Friends, assuming that you're not Jewish ethnically, and maybe some of you are, but assuming you're not, this verse is talking about us. This verse, in his name the nations will put their hope. Friends, if you're a Christian today, you have put your hope in in Jesus, right? And so in a way, we are a fulfillment even of this very text. It is spectacular. John Phillips says in his commentary of Matthew, he was already looking ahead to the other side of the cross and the inrush of the Gentiles into the church. And so he is a comprehensive Savior, not just for the Jews, but for the Greeks and the barbarians and me and you here in Cisna Park as well. So let's close before we prepare for communion with a few more truths for today from this second section. Number one, God knows everything. God knows everything. It is truly amazing to look at Scripture and how it fulfills itself. God, through His prophet, can predict what is going to happen to His incarnate Son some 600 years later because God is what theologians call omniscient or all-knowing. See, God sees all time equally vividly. And though he exists outside of time, he chooses yet to act inside of human time and space. The scriptures teach us that God knows all things in reality and that he knows all things in possibility. And he's fully and perfectly aware of everything at every moment. That's spectacular, right? It's hard to grasp. But there are practical implications to this truth that we saw on grand display here in Matthew because it should change how we act we should live our lives in view of the fact that God knows all things. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, the author of Hebrews writes this, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. You ever have a child who tried to hide from you? What did they do? They took their covers and they pulled it over their heads, right? And they thought because they couldn't see you that you couldn't see them, right? Friends, that's not how it works with, with God. We can't pull the covers over our lives and suspect that God doesn't know 
No, nothing is hidden from his sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. If none of our actions are hidden from God, and if one day we must give an account to him, friends, does that shape how we act after church today? And when you go to work tomorrow, when you go to school tomorrow, when you interact with your spouse or your boyfriend or your girlfriend, it changes it. At least it should. There was a very wealthy grandfather, and he was going deaf. He was having ear trouble. So he went to a, a, a specialist, and he, he got a very small and unique hearing aid. And he began to, to wear that hearing aid, um, but no one could really see. And he didn't tell his family that he was, he was going to do that. And so um, he went back to the doctor, and the doctor said, Your family must love the fact, knowing that you can hear so well now. And he said, Well... I haven't really told them about my hearing aid. I just kind of wanted to sit around and see what they said about me. And the doctor said, oh, really? And what did you find out? And he said, well, I'll put it this way. I've already changed my will three times. <laughs> you know, if we don't think, right, when we don't think that our actions are known, it affects how we act. And so knowing God hears and sees, it should change how we live. A second truth from this passage, and this is the overarching point, I think, of the whole section. The Bible can be trusted. The Bible can be trusted. Another truth we see is that the Bible is absolutely trustworthy, right? It's astonishing to me that Isaiah can predict Jesus' actions long before it happened. Friends, we saw earlier in the weeks before that when Jesus encountered the Pharisees, what was his favorite phrase? Remember a couple weeks ago? Haven't you read? Haven't you read? And he quotes the scriptures. Haven't you read? And he tells a story. Haven't you read? Defends himself from the Bible. Friends, it's a wonderful example for us. If Jesus obeyed the Bible, if he esteemed the Bible, if he read his Bible, if he sought to memorize it, if he trusted it, don't you think it's a great idea that we do that as well? I think so. Number three, Jesus is gentle and humble, even to those who reject him. Yet... He will judge the unrepentant. We see this very clearly with his interactions with the Pharisees. One pastor applied this passage in this way. He says, Jesus is a gentleman. When we ask him to leave, he will leave. He's a gentleman. When asked to leave, when told that he's not wanted, he will leave. Have you ever been at a social event, maybe a party, when someone who is, let's just say, not acting appropriately, they they were unwanted, they were asked to leave, but they didn't want to leave? You ever been there before? Maybe they were quarrelsome. Maybe they were even violent. There was a party that I was at in high school with a girl who just broke up with her boyfriend, and she didn't want him there. Well, guess who shows up knocking at the door? It's the boyfriend, right? And he is angry and upset. He wanted to be at the party. She didn't want him to be at the party. She asked him to leave. He didn't want to leave. And to use Isaiah, Isaiah's words, he, quar- he was quarrelsome. <laughs> he cried out in the streets, right? His words could be heard. It was not a pretty scene. Friends, Jesus isn't that way. The nation didn't want him, and so he left. The Pharisees wanted to murder him, and so he left. He didn't force himself upon them as Savior and King, and he will not do that with anyone today. Yet know this, that if you exercise your right to reject him as King, he will exercise his right to judge you. 
because he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He says, all authority on, in heaven and earth has been given to me, right? Judgment has been given to him. He will respect your decision to reject him. But rest assured, the day will come, as the great Apostles' Creed states, that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. So friends, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't ask the King of kings and the Lord of lords to leave. He will. Number four. Jesus is a Savior for all. He's a Savior for all. All peoples, all tribes, all ethnicities, all languages, friends. There is not a person that has ever existed or will ever exist, and there is not a place that ever existed or will ever exist in which uh, people don't need to trust in Jesus as Savior. Is that clear? Not a person ever, not a place ever, that doesn't need to bow the knee to Jesus as Savior and receive Him as their King. The Bible affirms that He is a, He's the Savior for everyone, right? Because everyone needs saving. He's the Savior for all because everyone needs saving. But the question is this, saving from what? Saving from what? I had a friend in high school who is a strong Christian, and he and I were visiting with my cousins. Uh, we were in high school or, or so, and and he was, trying to, uh, he was trying to share the gospel with my two cousins, Kelly and Nikki. Nikki was the younger. And I remember very vividly, uh, Billy, my friend, goes up to my cousin Nikki. And he says, hey, Nikki, are you saved? And she said, saved from what? And he's like, saved from? And he had to think, well, saved from what? What does that mean? He's trying to share the gospel. He wants to know if she's a Christian. But she asked the question, right? Saved from what? See, we don't need to get saved until we know we're in danger, right? We don't need saving. We don't need a savior until we recognize that there, we're in danger. The Bible says we need saving from sin, chiefly. God has made us to know him and to love him and to obey him forever, but our rebellious and sinful actions and nature has earned us the just penalty of death. Physical death and spiritual death. Physical death and spiritual death in hell. It is our just and deserved penalty. We need saving from that, friends. Until you recognize that you're not right with God, you won't need a Savior. But when you recognize that human beings in and of ourselves without the grace of God are not right with God and that we're destined for eternity with hell, then we recognize we need saving and that Jesus is the one who paid the penalty so that we could be saved. So he's a Savior for all. But the real question is this, is he the Savior of you? Jesus is the Savior of all people in the sense that He offers salvation to all. But the real question is, is He your Savior? So we're going to pray and we're going to transition into a time where we celebrate and remember what Jesus did for us. His body was broken like the bread was broken. His blood was spilt. And so we remember that and we celebrate that in communion. So I'm going to pray. And friends, if if you're here today and you're not sure that you're a Christian... If you're not sure that you've trusted in Him, you can pray with me right now and you can trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you are, if you're here today and you know you're a Christian, then the table is open to you. You don't have to approach the table. No one's forcing you. Jesus doesn't force Himself on anyone. So you don't have to come to the table. But if you're a Christian and you want to remember communion, then come to the table. If you know you're not a Christian, then please don't come to the table out of respect for what this means for us as a community. We're going to pray. And then I'm going to allow you opportunity to pray, and then we'll come to the table. Father, thank you for uh, this lesson on the life of your son. 
And Father, I pray now, if there's a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, and they've not trusted in Christ, they know that they haven't believed and, and received this gift of forgiveness of sins, uh, of, of eternal life, that they would even pray with me now, Dear God, I recognize now that my sins and my rebellious heart has separated me from you, and that I deserve to die and to go to hell. But in your great grace, you have sent your very Son, who lived the perfect life that is needed to go to heaven that I cannot live. And he's died the death in my place that I deserved, and that he's risen again, and he's offered me eternal life. And I receive that as a gift today. And friends, if you've done that, then talk with a friend, talk with me. Father, for those of us who have trusted in Christ, I pray that this time of communion would be reflective, that it would be celebratory, that it would be uh, full of worship and thanksgiving for what you have done for us. Because we know your son, it was his plan, your plan all along, that he would die on the cross at your timetable. And he was fully in control of that. We celebrate it now. We ask it in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen.